and welcome to episode one of the MTG Conflicts Cast. Uh, today we're going to be talking about our local PPTQ turnouts, as well as talking about Wizards' forthcoming change to the Planeswalker uniqueness rule. Uh, we're also going to be taking a look at some MTG Finance as we move into the next rotation uh, with the upcoming launch of Ixlon. Uh, but before we jump into the show, uh, let's tell you a little bit about ourselves. We uh, started this project as an opportunity to give back to the competitive magic community. And you know, while we were not pros, uh, we're dedicated players and, and we're grinders. Uh, our goal is to provide insight about different decks and to help you keep your finger on the pulse of the metagame. And hopefully that'll give you a, a leg up on your competition, whether it's an FNM or it's the upcoming PPTQ you're gonna be attending. Um, on top of all that, we're going to uh, occasionally talk about brews and experimental decks that we're working and playing with, as well as highlighting any that we see, you know, on, at FNM or at a PPTQ. Uh, we're aiming to keep you informed, but also entertained. Uh, a little bit about myself. Uh, my name is Steven. Uh, I am a, a modern player majorly, but I'm recently dabbling into legacy and standard uh, I try to play robots in any deck that I play, and the main deck that I always gravitate to is uh, Affinity in Modern. And today I am joined by my co-hosts, John and Zach. How's it going, guys? Pretty good. It's how going? are you? Pretty good. So, John, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, so, my name's John. Uh, I've been playing since Urza Block. Uh, I'm a tempo player at heart. Though I've been dabbling in mid-range and control a lot more lately, trying to expand my range. I mainly play modern, though I have dabbled in standard from time to time. And I've also been a force in getting the legacy community going back in our area. And so I've been playing a lot more legacy in the last year or two. How about you, Zach? Hello, I'm Zach. I'm at MoxBolts on Twitter. Feel free to block me. I've been playing Magic since I found a 7th edition starter set at Walmart when I was... 11 or 12. I typically play Thoughtseize and Tarmogoyf if I can fit cantrips into that deck as well. That is what I will do. I mostly play online and strictly modern with just a little bit of casual play on the side. I also delve into MTG Finance rather frequently. With that, it's time for the weekly roundup. Our weekly roundup is just a short discussion about what we played this week and if we saw any cool decks. So, Steven, what'd you, what'd you play this week? Uh, this week I played uh, Affinity at my FNM, Affinity at my PPTQ, and I played uh, the Tribal Flare list that uh, you guys have been working on, um, on my modern, at my Monday Modern tournament. And, um, it was so how was O2 dropping at the PPTQ? Actually, let me tell you, buddy, <laughs> uh, I actually won my PPTQ, which was... It's awesome. Uh, something I've been working super hard for for a while now. Steven, um, we're gonna, Steven, we're gonna talk more about your PPTQ victory in a little bit. John, how was your week? What'd you play? See anything cool? Yeah, I was the cool deck. Uh, I played uh, a yeah, local favorite for our shop, uh, Esper Dragons, at FNM. You can, you can. This is modern, mind you. Uh, we're not playing uh, flashback con standard. Um, you can check it out in my videos that are going up on our, uh, our YouTube account if you want to watch. Uh, we had three Esper Dragons players show up at this event. Uh, we all went 2-1-1, one, and one. Um, you know, rousing success. Uh, the, deck's, the deck's pretty sweet. Uh, and then on Saturday, I took uh, Tribal Flare to a PPTQ and had a um, somewhat anemic 3-3 finish. Um, I... The tournament went pretty well. My losses were super close, except for um, a match against taking turns where I just got completely dumpstered. Uh, that is not a favorable matchup, as far as I can tell. Um, but uh, the rest of the tournament was either 2-0 uh, victories or uh, really close losses in Game 3. So I felt pretty good about my deck choice and my play. Um, and I'm going to run it back this weekend and see if I can uh, follow up Steven with a win. Uh, so Zach, what did, uh, what did you uh, play this week? Anything cool? Yeah, so I played a league online with Modern Abzan. My version of Abzan runs Dark Confidant. I don't really buy the arguments for not running Dark Confidant, although I do see that some people do post results without playing Confidant in their Abzan lists. 
the only difference between the other Dark Confidant lists that you might see is that I fit in three Gideon of the Trials. Uh, I like it because it can play offense and defense. Uh, anyways, I went 3-2 in the league. I lost to Elves, and I lost to Eldrazi. Uh, in the game three versus Eldrazi, I had a handful of three drops and was stuck on two lands. I think maybe I should have mulliganed the hand and it would have turned out differently. Against Elves, I definitely punted. It was turn two or three, and I had the choice to either kill... Uh, Vizier, or I could kill the Duskwatch Recruiter, which is only useful once they have infinite mana, or so I thought. I killed the Vizier of Remedies, and then over the course of a 10-turn game, he drew about 10 cards off of that Duskwatch Recruiter, and just slowly buried me in Llanowar Elves. So if I had killed the Vizier, I'm sorry, if I had not killed the Vizier, if I had killed the Duskwatch Recruiter, then... I would have just beat him down with some Tarmogoyfs. Instead, he beat me down with Land Elves. So, lesson learned. It is hard to know, though. Like, he could have just as easily laid the combo piece, the second combo piece down the next turn and just killed you. Well, see, that that's true. He could have laid down the second combo piece, which would have been the Heritage Druid, but that would have only given him infinite mana. He didn't have anything to do with the mana if I killed the Recruiter. Uh, of course, now they are also playing uh, Azuri Renegade Leader, so there's somewhere to put the mana, but he didn't have that, so he would have needed two combo pieces in order to actually kill me. Hmm. Yeah, I guess that is just like a weird double-edged sword sort of situation. Yeah. So I left him with the, the piece that actually creates value by itself. And since, you know, that deck is 100 guess... mana sources... Yeah, I guess the elves list is a little bit less reliant on on that i feel like against the coco version the 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 non-elves coco version at least um it's a lot scarier to let that live yeah and that's where most of my experience dealing with that sort of combo is uh you know going all the way back to when it was malira uh so i think that's why i made the mistake but now i'll definitely be reconsidering those sorts of decisions did anyone see any cool decks uh i know John, you played an Esper Dragons deck. Uh, did you guys play against anything awesome? I played against that Taking Turns deck, which probably meets the uh, the spice uh, requirement for most people. Uh, it was all in all a pretty miserable experience. Um, and I also played against a I played against two mono white decks at FNM. I played against Martyr Proc, uh, and we went to time. <laughs> Because uh, that matchup takes forever. Uh, I killed him game one by tempoing him out with Cryptic Command, bouncing his Amirias. Uh, and then game two, he beat me, and then game three went to time. And then I played against another mono white deck, which was like a, a mono white into the battlefield effect deck with Displacer, trying to use Displacer to get lots of value, and then playing like really hateful enchantments like uh, Ghostly Prison and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, those were all like really interesting matchups. <laughs> How about you, Steven? Uh, you know, the m coolest thing that I saw was the Grand Architect deck. Uh, I know that that's been a deck for, for a little while now, and it's been kind of circulating, but I haven't actually seen it in paper, and I haven't seen somebody play with it. It was pretty gross to have, uh, have them be able to play a Walking Ballista for six or for eight, um, pretty early in the game and playing Affinity, they just, you know, they just say, okay, I'm going to clear your board and then pass a turn. I play something and then they're going to go, okay, I'm going to tap my creature for two mana, tap my blue creature for two mana and make, you know, more mana than I had before. It, you know, the deck is just, it, it's very explosive when it starts, but something that I noticed is if you kind of just control the board and, and keep your keep their creature count low. It's kind of hard for them to recover from that. Yeah, I actually uh, I'd forgotten. I saw that same deck at my PPTQ, and I got to see uh, I had to see it just crush a Dredge player. He had more creatures in play than the Dredge player, who had a healthy amount, and his creatures were all much much larger. And he had a just gigantic master of Ethereum, 
and it was uh it was pretty gross to watch he just crushed the guy yeah it, it, it's funny it's it, it works a lot like affinity where it just dumps its hand out but it's dumping a lot of like these cost reducers and artifacts which makes master ethereum just massive for one mana sometimes and then makes walking ballista like i i've seen i i was watching his games throughout the tournament and he played a walking ballista with 10 counters on it at some point and then just killed his opponent with 10 like with those 10 counters <laughs> it's also impressive that you can something that i the, that i do in my affinity deck is play master ethereum uh play walking ballista remove all the counters from walking ballista walking ballista still stays on the battlefield because it's a, getting plus one plus one from master ethereum and then they just get to add more counters on the next turn and remove them all off and, and it, it's just a vicious vicious cycle so yeah, uh, on that note, let's uh, let's get into our PPTQs. Uh, Steven, take us through round by round. What was uh, what was your tournament like? Uh, yeah, so my PPTQ turnout was a 38-player PPTQ. Uh, I ended up winning, which is awesome. Um, th- my round by round is round one Grixis Death Shadow. Uh, I lost because I didn't draw enough mana each game. It just seemed like I had a lot of two drops stranded in my hand. Um, and when I didn't have two drops stranded in my hand, uh, I was just getting Thoughtseize and Inquisitioned left and right. So I didn't really have much of a choice of recovering. Uh, my second round was against Burn Player. I won. He was playing a really weird deck that we've seen recently with uh, Shrine of the Burning Rage. Um, but he was also playing like Leyline of Sanctity and Wheel of Fate and Chandra Torch Defiance in the sideboard, which is. I, I don't really understand the reasoning behind that. I guess you just lose to decks that those are good against, I suppose. These awesome like cards, like his whole deck seems very slanted towards beating control. Yeah, and and that it just wasn't I don't think the meta is really at a control y kind of point right now, except for maybe if you consider Grixis Death Shadow as a control deck to a certain extent. Not against Burn. Yeah. Uh, my round three was against blue white control. Uh, which is, in my opinion, a very unfavored matchup for myself. But he got stuck on lands, and I just took full advantage of that, resolving cranial platings and etch champions while he only had two mana. And, you know, I was playing into his uh, mana leaks that he had, like, just perfectly. And I, I don't know. It, it was just, it was a really perfect, like, a quote-unquote perfect storm for, perfect storm for me. Uh, my round four, I lost against that blue Grand Architect deck. I misplayed game one, which kind of cost me the game. And then game two, I got stuck on mana. and wasn't, and you know, like I said before, that deck just gets, if it has the nut hand, it just has the nut hand and it just gets out of control way too quickly. My round five was against blue red storm. Uh, game one, I turned three, infected him with cranial plating and ten artifacts on on or nine artifacts on the battlefield. Uh, and game two, I resolved uh, a game uh, turn two rest in peace, which really put a damper on his plan. He wasn't. He even said it uh, out loud as we were playing that he wasn't expecting it. Uh, so it kind of took him a while to set up a good turn. And the only good turn he had was to wipe my board of my creatures, but I still had Ink Moth Nexus and Blink Moth Nexus to really clean up the game. Uh, my round six was against Boggles, and that game is just a, a race uh, between two really aggressive players. In game two, I ended up having Edge Champion swing in. After he declares no blocks, before damage, I sacrifice all my artifacts to Arcbone Avenger and move counters onto Edge Champion. He dealt 18 damage that turn, which was pretty cool. <laughs> That's gross. Yeah. yeah. And then moving into the top eight, the top eight was, uh, in no specific order, was Affinity, Affinity, Grand Architect, Merfolk, Humans, Titan Shift, Grixis Death Shadow, and Grixis Death Shadow. I think we had a good representation of what the meta could look like right now, um, but I don't think this is very uh, indicative of every meta because I don't think most metas will have those really aggressive uh, merfolk and human decks showing up in the top eight like that. I think most other decks are really well prepared for that kind of matchup, Um, but maybe I'm wrong. I could be wrong about that. 
Yeah, that top eight looks super aggressive. Yeah. Um, this looks like a top eight where all you want it to do is play Anger of the Gods. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I'm, I'm surprised the Titan Shift deck didn't just... Anger of God, Anger of the Gods, its way to. Uh, I think I think its win. first I think its first matchup was against Grixis Death Shadow. Uh, My round one was against Humans. Race, race, race. In game two, he I got lucky. He kept a one Cavern of Soul hand, and he played his one Human, uh, and that was it. I mean, I just I kept resolving creature after creature, and ended up resolving Edge Champion and Cranial Plating, and was able to equip it without seeing stony silence he eventually drew a second land and played stony silence but the it was already equipped and like there was nothing he could really do from that point it sounds like he kept a really greedy hand trying yeah. to get there with stony silence and got punished yep and, and honestly like with affinity i feel like most of my game two and game three wins and tend to happen from my opponent getting really greedy with their uh stony silence hands i've had opponents keep you know one stony silence five lands wow and they get really punished when I go turn one, two signal pest, and two ornithopters go, and they realize their their stony silence doesn't do anything, and they still have to fetch and shock to to play other cards. I I just think it was it was a misplay for for him to keep a such a greedy hand. Round two was against Merfolk. Uh, the whole I saw him earlier playing. He was uh, playing Vapor Snag. My guess over Dismember, possibly, because I didn't end up seeing Dismember in his list at all. Yeah, that makes sense. And I just played around Vapor Snag for both games, or all three games. And uh, in game two and three, he recalled me once in each game, I think. Game three, I was able to reset my board pretty evenly. And I had a dispatch for a very time, a very timely dispatch for one of his lords and was able to block and kill something, which really just put me eons ahead of his board state and then my final round was against affinity it was the mirror match he was he seemed like a pretty fairly uh, a fairly new player and uh, i've had a lot of experience with affinity so i felt very comfortable going into the top eight but what really did it for what really close i mean what i feel like was just the play of the day for me was in game three uh, i won game one he won game two. Uh, game two was kind of a blur, he, uh, mostly because I wasn't on the play, so I didn't expect to win. I had like little windows of opportunity that if he misplayed, I would have won, but um, he was playing pretty tight game two, um, as opposed to his game one where he swung with all of his flyers and tapped out his mana, even though I had Arcbrand Ravenger and an Inkbond Nexus open. Little little tiny mistakes like that will, will cost you the game pretty easily in the mirror match. Uh, but in game three, sorry, uh, back to the play of the day, is uh, I kept a seven-card seven hand with Ancient Grudge, Ornithopter, Mox Opal, Welding Jar, Memnite, Mox Opal, uh, and Darkseal Citadel. So my turn one is Darkseal Citadel, one, two, three, four, zero drops, keeping Mox Opal and Ancient Grudge in my hand. And he's his turn one is Glimmer Void, Ornithopter, Thoughtseize, to which I respond, blow up your Ornithopter with Ancient Grudge. He takes my Mox Opal, and then he passes the turn and has to sacrifice his Glimmer Void. He saw, he scried to the top, so I'm assuming it was his, the land that he played, but he didn't see a land after that. And I top-decked Master Ethereum, Ornithopter, and Master Ethereum, um, which just closed the game out really, really quick. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah. Overall, the room wasn't ready for uh, aggressive strategies, and I think everybody who, who were, everybody who was playing a slower deck was really punished for that, and I think the combo decks even uh, were running a little light on their uh, sweepers. Um Outside of the one storm game I played, I I played uh, I saw two other storm players and they both got beat out by uh, similar aggressive strategies, and then I saw two bant company decks uh, or sorry two bant colored company based decks that were doing different things. I think one was a knight of the reliquary based and the other one was more of like a tempo uh, spell queller based deck, uh, and then um, I saw at least. One Jund and one uh, Abzan 
deck, and they both did pretty pretty poor. Uh, they they both got beat out pretty quickly, and then there were two bo- boggles lists there and two Tron players there that I could see. It was I think the room itself was pretty diverse, but I just don't think anybody was really ready for super aggressive strategies. So what about you, John? Yeah, so I uh, took the Trouble Flayer list that uh, Zach and I have been working on to PPTQ. It's a sort of Jund Bay. It's like the the core concepts of Jund, but uh, skewed towards being a, uh, a five-color Tribal Flames deck. Um, you're playing stuff like Nicotl, Grim Flayer, Tarmogoyf, um, and uh, Discard. Just trying to play like a really disruptive, aggressive game. Um, and then you kind of close out things of tribal flames, um, big creatures or lingering souls, a lot of main deck lingering souls. Uh, I feel it's pretty, pretty well matched up against the meta right now. Um, and so I, uh, took it to the event. It was a 54 player event, which is actually on the smaller side for our area. We've been having a lot of 70 plus player events lately. Seems like the events on the West coast, at least over here in NorCal have been, a lot larger than the ones you've been going to on the east coast even yeah definitely um yeah they've been this is the first one i've been to in a while that wasn't a seven round event it was actually six rounds um so that was great um been a lot of seven round events lately and they've been starting late and so it makes for a really long day and i've definitely noticed it affecting my play by the end of the day um i tend to play without eating um i get sleepy after eat so i try to play hungry and the longer the day goes on, the more that is a disadvantage. Yeah, if you want to um, win, it's important to stay hungry. <laughs> I am very hungry, especially now that Stevens won one. Um, <laughs> but uh, I start off uh, round one. I played against Eldrazi Tron. Um, uh, he was not really sure what I was playing, which was kind of a reoccurring theme. That's kind of a nice advantage of the deck. Um, he began to kind of suspect uh, Tribal Flames in the second game. He didn't see it in the first game. Um, and I think I hid my my blue mana from him in the first game, um, but I beat him two zero. Um, pretty pretty quick uh, pretty quick games. Just kind of bullied him out. Um, Grim Flare made it really easy to kind of um, set myself up a turn ahead of what he was doing. Um, there was a uh, point in game two where he thought he was going to stabilize, where he slammed down a Endbringer. And I immediately untapped, drew the Tribal Flames that I'd put on top of my deck and killed it, and then cracked in for a bunch of damage, and he died on my next turn after that. Um, and so he really wasn't ready for that. So Grim Flayer sitting of draws was really effective the whole the whole tournament. Um, round two, I played against Affinity, which is um, honestly a pretty embarrassing matchup from Affinity's side. <laughs> um, you just get smashed by Lingering Souls, Fatal Push, Lightning Bolt... Um, Path to Exile, Snapcaster Mage, out of the board, there's Abrupt Decay. It, it, it's just a miserable, god awful matchup. Command. Yeah, there's oh, also yeah. Colgon's <laughs> Command, one main, one side. The matchup is just awful for Affinity. It's pretty hard to lose. Uh, you have to have a pretty bad draw, and they have to have a pretty great draw for them to win a game. So that was a pretty easy 2 0. You have uh, everything with the Null Rod there. Yeah, exactly. My opponent was definitely not happy to play against me um, round two. Um, round three, I played against Titan Shift. Um, I was pretty excited going into the round, but a bit nervous. Uh, the guy I was playing against is probably one of the best players in NorCal. Uh, Ricky Sitter, he's been on the Pro Tour multiple times. Um, I did know that he has been playing Affinity, like all the local PPTQs, for the last few months. Uh, he's quite good at the deck, but like we just said, the matchup is amazing. Uh, unfortunately, he decided he wanted to have a fun PPTQ and just screw around, and he borrowed Titan Shift from a friend. <laughs> um, I definitely mulled my first hand away, uh, assuming he was on Affinity. Um, kept my my six-card hand. Um, didn't want to go too hard on the selective mulliganing, um, and I was glad that I chose to do that instead of mulliganing further. Um, we had three games. Uh, games one and three were both... Uh, pretty anemic for both of uh, both of us. Um, he just kind of played lands and dirtled. Never had like much action because I was tearing his hand apart with uh, discard effects. But I failed to really ever present any quick clocks. Uh, game two, however, uh, I did clock him pretty aggressively. Put him in a situation where he had to rip escape shift exactly off the top of his deck, I believe, and he failed to do so, and I won. Um, but unfortunately, that wasn't enough, so I lost that round. 
Um, the next round, round four, I played against Abzan, um, which is a pretty interesting matchup. Um, we have a lot more reach than they do with Tribal Flames and Lightning Bolt, uh, but they have Liliana the Veil, which can be quite good in the games where I fail to find Lingering Souls. Um, so um, we played to three games, and I was put in a position where I had to try to play for a draw. Um, and over the last two turns of the game, uh, we both drew exactly what we wanted. Um, I drew, um, I believe it was Path into Snap into Lingering Souls, and he drew Path into Lingering Souls, and that was enough for him to just squeeze me out of the game. Um, the fifth round, I was trying to win out at that point, obviously. Uh, I still had a shot at top eight, I believe. Played against Taking Turns. That was an awful, miserable matchup. Um, he just kind of had exactly what he needed to... Oh, yes. Uh, game two, I sideboarded in an Ancient Grudge, expecting to be able to get his Howling Mines. Uh, unfortunately, uh, he was not playing Howling Mines in his version of the deck. He was only playing Dictative Crufix. Um, it's kind of hard to know exactly how uh, different versions of that deck are going to be built. Uh, there's not exactly like a hard and fast list there's a lot of flexibility still uh, i got unlucky in that he was playing a slightly different version than what i was hoping he was uh, so i lost that in two um, got killed by large uh, lands that had been um, animated by um, part the waterville and uh, we moved on to the sixth round just playing for glory and potential prize uh, i played against grixis shadow and just crushed him in two games um, it's a pretty decent matchup. Uh, they like to be at low life totals, and uh, Tribal Flames punishes them severely for that, as does Lingering Souls. So that was my tournament. Uh, so pretty you got average. the glory there. Did you get the prize? I did not. Uh, I ended up not being able to squeak into top 16 prize, unfortunately. Well, I, glory is it's a prize in itself. Yeah, I ended up somewhere down in 25th. Um, didn't break my way on that one, unfortunately. You know, I want to kind of touch back on something that you mentioned in your Eldrazi Tron matchup is where you used uh, your top deck Tribal Flames to remove a creature. Mm -hmm. Something that I noticed while playing this deck um, it, and it took me two weeks to really get a good hold on this deck and kind of figure out how it works um, but something that I learned very quickly was to not forget that Tribal Flames is a removal spell. Um I in the first week that I played the deck, I had multiple tribal flames stranded in my hand because I wasn't ready to play them uh, on a creature, and I wanted to throw it at their face because I felt like that was more effective. But um, this past week, uh, I used tribal flames more as a removal spell rather than a burn spell, and let me tell you that that makes the difference with the deck. Um, just remembering that. It is just another uh, versatile card in your toolbox. Yeah, it. Um, you really just have to kind of calculate uh, what's going to get you more damage. And frequently, if you have a couple creatures on board, um, just being able to push damage repeatedly through your creatures is the better play. Especially when you have a Grimflayer, um, because Grimflayer kind of almost feels like how Treasure Crews used to, whereas once you get that first hit with Grimflayer, you're going to find more of the cards you want, and it's going to let you get in with Grimflayer again. Kind of how when you Treasure Cruise, you would very frequently dig yourself into cards that were going to get you into your second Treasure Cruise very rapidly. Yeah. It definitely has a similar play pattern to that. Obviously not as good as Treasure, Treasure Cruise, Cruise. <laughs> but um, the play pattern is actually shockingly similar. I mean, you're not drawing the cards, but you're drawing exactly what you want, which yeah. is great. Um, and frequently the deck puts opponents in a hard place where they have to decide whether they want to kill a very large tarmic wife or if they want to kill a grim flare and um it really puts the squeeze on you whether they want to shut off your largest creature or your source of card selection and they don't always choose correctly so steven i think you hit on a very good point there uh, when i first built the deck what i was doing was i i was playing jund and i just kept feeling like i wanted another one drop removal spell other than lightning bolt this was before fatal push was printed so i was just trying to get path into the deck and then lingering souls once i was doing that i realized that in the meta which at the time was uh before the cataxian pro ban i i wanted to be just a little bit faster because i wasn't able to really race these decks uh, or present a good enough clock against the 
the combo decks. So I realized it was basically free at that point to just add Wild Nacatl. And once I was playing with that, I realized that then adding Tribal Flames was just as simple as putting a Water Grave in the deck. Um, and it was put there, obviously, yeah, you can you can just kill someone from 10, but really it's, it's a removal spell. And the deck, you should be playing it as if it is a Jund or an Abzan deck uh, that just sometimes has that turn one Wild Nacatl. But that's what you're doing with that deck anyways. Like, you want to Thought Seize and then play a Tarmogoyf. So some, you know... You're disrupting them while pressuring them. Yeah. The all of your spells are either discard or removal until oh I can just burn you out now. Yeah. Yeah. The deck. I mean, the deck is is a lot of fun, and I think uh, moving forward, I'm gonna be doing some heavy practicing um, with the deck uh, just to to really see if it's something that I want to play either at. Um, at the next at the upcoming rptq that i have to go to or if i want to play it post rptq i think the deck is likely to be an excellent choice for an rptq and i say that because i feel like the deck is very well positioned against the top players in the meta whereas it is quite weak to some of the more french decks um this also hinges entirely on the amount of blood moon you expect to see yeah Yeah. if that's kind of the base hurdle that you have to uh, cross at this deck Um, if there is low amounts of blood moon then you're good to play the deck if not you can't play it at all period Um, but once you've crossed that hurdle of no blood moon if you expect to see the top decks in the meta this deck is quite good Um, so keep an eye on the amount of blood moon that you see and i think if there is expected low amounts of blood moon and rptq is an excellent tournament to take this deck to because people are going to be trying to play their best decks they're going to be trying to play their 50 50 decks their juns their abzans they want to give themselves the best chance of winning or they're going to be playing the cheesy combo decks stuff like grishel brand stuff like that and you're going to punish them with your discard and your sideboard counter spells, which a lot of decks aren't able to play simultaneously. So I think the deck is a solid choice for an RBTQ. So enough tournament talk. Uh, I think it's time we moved on to looking at Wizards of the Coast's new uh, Planeswalker rule that's going to be rolling out with Ixalan. John, do you think you could tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, so they're making a little bit of change to the Planeswalker uniqueness rule uh, and how it applies to um, playing Planeswalkers of the same type Previously, obviously, if you had a Liliana of the Veil and a Liliana of the Last Hope, if you were to play uh, your second Liliana Planeswalker, you would have to choose which one you wanted to keep and which one went to your graveyard, uh, much like how legendary creatures with the same exact name work. Uh, like if you play a Thalia, Guardian of Thraven, and you play another Thalia, you would have to choose which to keep. But if you played a Thalia, Heretic Cathar, you'd be able to keep both. They're changing it so the Planeswalkers work the same way as this. So if you have a Liliana the Veil and play a Liliana the Last Hope, you're now able to keep both. Um, this is a little bit awkward from a flavor perspective, obviously, um, but... The game it, no longer makes any sense. It helps smooth things out. My um, entire also, world, my entire <laughs> multiverse has been shaken. Yeah. You're ridiculous. Did you... Okay, did you, when, when someone casts two drop thalia and then the next turn they cast three drop thalia that bothers me but i can justify it by saying okay my opponent is a planeswalker they can summon this thalia from the past and this thalia from the future they're different you know they're different parts on the timeline it like i'm okay with that but the planeswalkers the same way under that logic but a but a planeswalker is planeswalking itself they have loyalty how is it that Jace has one loyalty to me, and then also Jace has another loyalty to me? The different versions of Jace. You're, you're messing with timelines, man. I mean, I guess, I guess you're right. I mean, we just have to look at it like that. Like we're we're literally like time traveling. Time traveling. It, it just huh. it doesn't sit right with me when it's the planeswalkers, and I think it's just because they, you know, can I? They're walking. Can I have two of me at the table? <laughs> Yeah, it's a little awkward from a flavor perspective. Um, I think it does clean up some some weird rules scenarios though, and it opens the uh, the path to Gideon Tribal, which we uh, we're all gonna bow down to our new modern overlord, Gideon Tribal. 
You heard it here first. You know what? I'd, I'm I'm standing by that deck. I think that deck is going to be so good with this new rule. Just like curving out Gideon's just seems way too good to pass up. You know, I think that Gideon is going to be very good. Um, and I think the Planeswalker character Gideon probably benefits the most from this rule. But I've been trying to figure out, of all the Planeswalkers, you know, which ones are good and which ones are bad based on this rule. Um, and so I think the individual card that actually benefits the most from this is Liliana, uh, Liliana the Last Hope. And the reason for that is because I always felt like you could run a 3-1 split or you could just run four Liliana the Veils, but now you can just run five of those. Yeah, that's great. You know, because having them both in play, would that's very powerful because Liliana the Veils' weakness is little tiny creatures, which is the strength of Liliana the Last Hope. It really can shore up your main deck. You can have, uh, instead of having to rely on your sideboard to kind of um, swap into this alternate plan, you can just have a main deck now and yeah. have a bit more robust uh, game plan against different types of decks, game one. And I'm sure there's going to be some situations where, you know, your hand is just too good to really discard anything, so you discard a creature card and then put that creature card back in your hand with Ooh. the other Lily and... Juicy. Yeah, I, it just it seems like Liliana decks are just going to be very, 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 very well off with this new rule. Whereas a lot of the other decks that play Planeswalkers aren't going to... I mean, you know, besides Gideon Tribals, no other Planeswalker is going to be able to uh, take advantage of this new rule as, as much as Lily is going to. Hey, hey, I don't know. We have Mono Blue Jace Control now. Vern's Prodigy into Jace Balaran into Architect of Thought. And there's no good Jaces after that, so we just stop there. Um, <laughs> but that's pretty sweet, didn't right? Many good Jaces. Oh, rude, rude. <laughs> oh, those all all of those Jaces hold Jace a special place my in my heart. Of planeswalkers that don't benefit from this because there aren't really enough good Jaces. Uh, also on that list is a Johnny. I don't think he really has any that matter. Um, Chandra. I think there are two uh, four drop Chandras that are both good. Uh, but neither of them are really four ofs. The so six drop is fine. Not well, but is that even in standard anymore? That rotated, right? Or is no, it yeah, it's yeah, about right. to rotate? So it's it's yeah. no longer in a format where it's relevant. And I mean, yeah, having having uh, so having Chandra Torch of Defiance and also Chandra Pyromaster in play at the same time that does sound pretty good. They have the same kind of thing where Torch of Defiance is good uh, with dealing with big creatures. Pyromaster is dealing with small creatures. Uh, but I don't really think you're going to want three or more of those effects in your deck anyways, so you don't want that many Chandras. Uh, I was also thinking Kiora. Just, again, it's a four-drop, so just not that powerful anyways. Um, but the, the Planeswalkers that I were thinking maybe are going to be benefiting from this um, would be Soren, Garrick, and Elspeth. Uh, if you were ever in a position where you were thinking you wanted the four-drop Sorens, uh, either one it's definitely now i think better to run a split uh, it was always a hard choice it was always a hard choice and they do slightly different things but now now i think you want to split if that's what you're going for um elspeth black white tokens gets a little a, a small power bump here yeah yeah elspeth knight errant uh used to be considered one of the best planeswalkers that's many planeswalkers ago uh but she's still playable and then we have uh Sun's Champion, Elspeth's Sun's Champion, which is definitely modern playable if you're playing the right deck. Uh, so maybe both of those on the battlefield at the same time. But again, maybe you just want Gideon's instead. Um, and then, you know, it's I've played some Garrick, uh, different versions, whether it's Wildspeaker or Relentless in modern, but they still, the four drop overlap, for those, they're just effects that you're not going to have a lot of. So I think Gideon, you know, curving three drop into four drop into five drop Gideon out of something like blue white control, that could just be stupid. Uh, and then yeah, double Liliana is also going to be very good. Yeah, it lets you really push that blue white control like even more in the tap out uh, direction instead of Drago, which I think is where you want to be in a format like Modern, where you're rewarded for being proactive instead of reactive. Especially when um, there's no good counter spells. Yeah, I mean, you can even play a couple Cryptic Commands or something at that point. You just play, like, the really good counter spells, right? Something I was uh, thinking about is um, Watsi kind of dropped the ball um, a little bit. Maybe, maybe not dropped the ball isn't the right right phrase, but uh, Liliana's defeat, obviously excellent against Liliana. Cease play in modern sideboards against Death Shadow decks. 
kills Dev Shadow, kills Liliana. Have you looked at Gideon's defeat? That card is not nearly as good. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, if the Gideon decks are super solid, um, we aren't stuck playing Gideon's defeat because gaining five life just isn't where you want to be against a Gideon deck, honestly. <laughs> yeah. It has to be. It has to be attacking uh, to exile it, and it only gains you five life. It's just not nearly as good as Liliana's defeat, unfortunately. It's also just not as good as um path to exile so it's kind of like why would you run that uh where liliana's defeat is much more versatile and a good sideboard card against arguably the best deck so since we're pretty sure the planeswalkers that most benefit from this are liliana and gideon then i think the big takeaway is that decks playing those are the ones that are going to get the biggest boost which at this point seems to be black green decks uh, and blue-white control decks. There are some Grixis decks that are running uh, more than one version of Liliana, so that could also be a boost for them. So, Steven, what are the headlines this week? Uh, so, the bigger headlines uh, from this week coming out is the Digital Next Project at Magic the Gathering Arena. We got a little photo preview with Jace um, on the cover of it. And we still don't know any information, but we will be seeing what this is on September 7th, which is coming up. Um, I know some people are pretty, I think this is a pretty polarizing topic where some people say, why not just invest more time into making uh, Magic Online a better product instead of working on a new product that isn't Magic Online. Um, but I'm pretty excited to see where Wizards is going with this, and I hope it isn't uh just another uh, duels version um, that they already have. Calling it now, it's going to be a MOBA game based on Wizards characters. You heard it here. You don't think it'll be cards? <laughs> no cards. There's it's no going to be like Puzzle Quest. It's going to be like Puzzle Quest. They've said that they need a way for beginner digital players to get into the game and just beginners in general. So it's definitely going to be something that leads to the players either taking the jump to Magic Online or taking the jump to playing in paper. Because that's what they want, is they want people to join the game. So it's it, it will be targeted... It'll be targeting new players and hopefully appeal to entrenched players as well. Uh, and my hope is that it is a good system... You know, has a good uh, operating system and is powerful enough that at some point in the future, hopefully the near future, they are able to port Magic Online into it, keeping everyone's accounts uh, the same. So you have your cards and you know the similar economy for Magic Online, uh, so that we can have you know the best of both worlds, getting new players and a better Magic Online. Uh, another big headline. Um, which kind of really was, in my opinion, was kind of like a non-headline, uh, was the Bannon Restricted Notice, where Vintage was getting a little little attention. Um, to me, Vintage seems like a very far-off format that is kind of untouchable um, due to its price range. Um, but I'd like to... But what are you guys' thoughts on it? Like, This is why it matters. Have, they yeah, started I have strong opinions. Vintage leagues online so i've been thinking for a long time i would love to invest in vintage uh, online because it's just way cheaper it's cheaper than playing paper legacy by quite a bit it's um, quite achievable online yeah but and the, and the actually format had some in issues. the last week or so since this announcement we have had a big jump uh, in some vintage staples online because obviously more people are interested and I wouldn't be surprised if it's a lot of speculators uh, but this is this is a good thing they did this I think mostly for the online scene where there actually is vintage yeah I think there's a couple reasons why this is great for vintage and almost all of them like you said are online related um, they have shown themselves already willing to reprint vintage staples online and i expect it in the future if prices continue to climb so it's a very uh much safer to 
buy into as a player if you're looking to not get priced out less safe potentially as an investor um although it does cause a lot more movement on cards which is definitely a place for profit to be made as an investor so that maybe actually works out in investors favor anyways as long as you aren't sitting on a large crop of cards that you were hoping to steadily appreciate in value um for example black lotus was 48 40 or sorry black lotus was 48 and a half tickets on uh august 19th and today it is 93 43 wow that's a huge jump yeah uh, i don't expect that to hold in the long term no but, but um yeah so the uh, the bannings and vintage um were i think a good thing um shops has been a uh, pretty oppressive force in the metagame for a long time uh mishra's workshop is kind of a sacred cow um wizards does not want to ban it due to paper players who have invested a lot of money into it yeah so they don't want to restrict it they don't ban vintage they restrict uh they limit to a single copy instead of banning it outright um so instead they've been banning various lock pieces trying to tune the deck down this is yet another lock piece kind of cutting out the legs under the deck a little bit more trying to knock it down in power level um they also restricted monastery mentor we ever uh, it that? was uh, Thorn of Amethyst. Um, so yeah, Thorn of Amethyst a is a little bit more of an aggressive choice over Sphere of Resistance because Thorn of Amethyst saw play in Mono White Aldrazi and other creature-based lock decks, which are a very healthy presence in the Vintage metagame. They help keep uh, blue decks in check and kind of keep um, Storm decks, which are obviously blue decks in check, but very specifically uh, it affects Storm decks quite quite a lot. Um so unfortunately they took a bit of splash damage but i believe wizards was worried that um merely restricting sphere instead of thorn would maybe not be enough of a hit against the deck and they felt the need to make a big hit against the deck because the other pillar of the format uh blue based monastery mentor decks saw monastery mentor get restricted and um, Monastery Mentor has kind of proven itself over the last few years to be one of the most effective win conditions in the format. Um, blue decks in Vintage like casting a lot of spells. They're often casting them for zero or one mana, and Monastery Mentor rewards you generously for doing so. Um, so with that out of the way, it will kind of open up the options for blue decks as far as what you want to win with. Uh, Young Pyromancer becomes a bit more of an option now. Um, other decks that win with other cards are a little bit more viable now with uh, Mentor off the table. Uh, it's snowballed out of control very quickly, unlike something like Pyromancer, where they're always one ones. Um, they could get quite large um, with Mentor. Um, the other changes to the uh, banning and restricted list for all formats is that, um, as I think all of us can talk about, the lack of a ban in Modern is very interesting and kind of telling to how Wizards feels, at least right now, about the health of the format. Um, a lot of people were calling for a shadow ban or speculating on a potential shadow ban, and just as many people on the other side were saying that it was fine. Um, how do you guys feel about the lack of a banning in context of current uh, high-level event results for Death Shadow? I, I like it a lot. I don't think that Death Shadow... I mean, this coming from the Affinity player, right? But... Um, I don't think Death Shadow is, while it isn't uh, a very powerful deck, I don't think it is an unbeatable deck, um, and I don't think it's a like disgustingly busted deck. I think it has some busted hands, but the statistic of having those hands are fairly low. I think it's fine to not ban it, because right now the metagame is very healthy, and I think a lot of people are really loving Modern right now. Uh, as they should i do think that death shadow will be banned sooner rather than later um i would be pretty surprised if it lasted six months after the modern pro tour coming up um whether that's because it gets banned right before that pro tour which they said they're not going to do uh or if it just gets banned pretty soon after uh but i think one way or another we will someday be without death shadow and modern uh but right now if it's not broke don't fix it i would rather see a ban of something like um the uh cycling the two mana life cycler street rave thank you uh i think that's a much more healthy uh banning option um wizards is always already kind of showed they like to ban 
um, enablers rather than completely neutering an archetype. And um, they've also shown that they're not a huge fan of free cantrips such as Gitaxian Probe. So I think that's the card that'll probably uh, get the axe if a card does get the axe. I'm hoping it doesn't. Um, I think Death Shadow um, being the deck to beat in the format is perfectly fine. There's always going to be a deck to beat in any format, and I would much rather it be a fair deck rather than an unfair deck. I think that creates more interesting play patterns and engages players a lot more than something like a deck like Ad Nauseam or Storm being the top deck in the format, where it much more comes down to uh, the frequency and how the frequency of and how early you draw your sideboard cards. Um, that obviously still matters in a matchup like Death Shadow, um, but it matters less and puts you to the test less as to how you are able, how early you are able to draw them the first turn or two of the game. Um, you can still draw uh, a sideboard card against Death Shadow in later turns of the game and have it be equally as effective as it would be in earlier turns of the game, unlike a deck like um, Dredge or Storm, where you really need it uh, early to be able to interact before they kind of establish themselves and set up their game plan. Yeah, you might be right that Street Wraith is the better ban. Uh, you can see how it is showing up in a lot of different decks, uh, just kind of like Gitaxian Probe was. Like you said, it is a free cantrip, uh, and that's probably a bad thing for a format to allow 56 or 52 card decks if you're running uh, something like Mishra's Bobble. Uh, and you can see, you know, it also gets uh, abused in a way in Living End as probably the best cycler there because it's free, although it's fairly easily replaced there um, but it's also one of the cards that really makes the uh, the Vengevine Hollow One deck busted uh, without that card that deck is definitely not that it's you know tier one or anything like that but that you know it's it's enabling decks like that as well so I wouldn't be surprised if that was the better ban but I, I even still I think that uh, someday regardless even if they ban Street Wraith, something else then uh, pushes Death Shadow forward again. Uh, and we'll see. I mean, obviously it was fine for, what, seven years? <laughs> <laughs> um, moving on from our headlines, let's take a look at any upcoming events this weekend. And I think the only one coming up is uh, GP Washington. Um, it looks like it's a standard format, and going into the event, it seems like Teamer Energy seems very favored in the format. Uh, a little bit of insight into that one, actually, from uh, watching Gabe Nassif uh, stream a lot this last week and a half or so. Uh, Teamer Energy with a little black splash for the Scarab God looks really powerful especially in the mirror match. So I would uh, I would give that one at least a little look. Uh, you can see some deck lists online trying out that tech. But this is the last standard of big standard event um, until rotation. So I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, more decks trying to make a leaner version that is going to survive the rotation um, that's coming up. And uh, kind of segueing, speaking of a rotation, uh, Zach, you wanted to go over some uh, MTG Finance that we're going to be calling Grinder Finance, um, kind of related to rotation. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Okay, so I am not a professional MTG Finance guy. I don't write articles on any of the MTG Finance websites about this. I don't pay my bills with this. I have walked out of GPs with a couple thousand dollars in my pocket from selling cards, but that doesn't pay the bills. What it does do is make it so that I can keep playing Magic year after year without sinking more money into the game. Because if you look at your collection and you think about how much you have spent, you have probably spent thousands of dollars and you're probably okay with spending thousands more but you don't have to. So Grinder Finance is going to be a segment that we will have sometimes on this cast about how to play for less. And so right now, rotation is coming. You need to be prepared. If you look at your binder, if you look at your deck, if you look at your collection, there's probably cards in it that you could be fine with not having for the next month and a half sell or trade away your rotating standard cards 
I mean, everyone knows this, right? It's been said time and time again. If you are not using them, sell them. They're going to burn a hole in your pocket, in your wallet. If you are using them, consider how much you need them over the next month. Is it really worth playing the tier one standard deck so that you can win some FNMs? How much value can you gain from that versus how much are you going to lose? It's not standard PTQ season right now. It's modern PTQ season. So what I advise is just move out of rotating standard cards. That's Shadows over Innistrad and Battle for Xanacar blocks. What you want to move into, obviously cash is king, but if you are trading, look at non-rotating cards uh, that you feel are going to be playable and move into those. For example, Chandra Torch of Defiance is a great place to park some money. It's not rotating. It has a good chance to go up in value. If it doesn't go up, it's steady. So if you trade a $20 card that then is going to be $10 in a few weeks, for another $20 card that is still just going to be $20, you're not losing any money. And that's what you need to think of. That's Don't lose money at rotation. Don't lose money week to week. If you can make $10 on that transaction, maybe that $20 card you trade for goes up to $30. That's what you need to do. If you play standard, you know which cards are good and which cards aren't. Look for those. Another place I like to park my money is modern cards. You obviously have to think about reprints that could be coming up. I think we're somewhat clear, at least for a few months, through rotation. Those cards aren't really going to go down. Sometimes they go up. When they're reprinted, they can go down, so don't have them then. Reprints are like a rotation for Eternal cards. The last year or two of Standard have not been popular. I mean, people have been crying about how bad Standard is, and I don't mean that to be mean. I mean that literally. Standard has sucked. There's been bans... You know, so it's either you're getting cards banned from your deck or you're not playing a good deck. But think about this. There are dinosaurs and there are pirates in the next set. Standard is going to be very popular. So this combined with a huge rotation. All of your Delirium cards are leaving Standard. Gideon, Ally of Zendikar is leaving Standard. Eldrazi are leaving Standard. So suddenly this whole landscape is going to be way different and actually a lot smaller. You're going to have five sets in standard as opposed to eight sets in standard that's going to make cards from kaladesh probably go crazy you find the right ones you're going to be doing very well and cards from the most recent block amonkhet those are positioned well also my personal favorite card going into this right now is gideon of the trials i'm really high on that card I would not be surprised if it was at least a double up, if not a triple up. Full disclosure, I have a few hundred dollars worth of Gideons in paper and digital. So just look for that. Great and modern. Look for the ways that you can minimize your losses and hopefully also pick up, pick up some gains. You roll that over every few months from rotations. You make it so that... Next time you need to move into a standard deck, it's much easier to do that. Or if you slowly roll your standard cards into modern cards, then you start playing modern for cheap, if not free. You've already spent so much money on magic, you don't need to spend more. Another thing to keep in mind is that we know that we are getting the check lands, buddy lands, the lands from M10. Those are being reprinted, the allied ones. I think that the original ones are probably worth having they're fairly cheap right now and people tend to like the original ones plus it's the modern border which i think is better than the current border whatever that eventually ends up being called so supply is obviously going to go up but so is demand once those cards are in standard demand cannot be higher for them than when a card is played in standard and then when the if you look back to when the enemy pain lands got reprinted the Apocalypse versions and even the 10th edition versions were worth quite a bit more than the regular versions and more than they were before the reprint. So this new demand, even though the supply goes up, this new demand can make those older versions jump. So it's worth looking into. If nothing else, if you want to play with those older versions, maybe get them now. 
standard lands are usually not cheap. I mean, just look at some of the uh, the fast lands. Obviously, that's their first printing. There's going to be way more of these check lands. But still, there's a good reason to invest in them now. Save yourself some money. Yeah, this is a, a similar technique to what I've used for a long time to help finance my collection. Um, basic principles of buy low, sell high. Just don't get caught holding the bag when rotation happens. And uh, always keep an eye forward to modern when looking at standard cards. Um, you want to buy stuff when it exits standard, hits its lowest low before it starts to grow back up again as demand for modern over time slowly raises the value of the card. Speaking of uh, eternal cards and eternal formats, uh, Fatal Push seems to be like a great place to be trading into right now, uh, specifically the promo, seeing as that's not only just uh, a standard stable, but has quickly become uh, one of modern's uh, most more powerful staples. So moving on to a segment that we're going to call uh, Slot of the Week. Uh, this is where we're going to pick a card um, that we are very excited to play in our 75 um, this weekend or at any events that we'll be playing in the next uh, seven days. Uh, in my 75, I want to play Rise from the Tides. It's a six mana sorcery. That says um, you get two two black zombies for each instant and sorcery instant and sorcery card in your graveyard onto the battlefield tapped. Um, I've been gold fishing with uh, Storm recently, and I have it as a one of in the deck, and it really it, it's won me most of my games. I just I don't know. It just seems very, very powerful to play um, after not being able to find the right Storm cards or to not being able to find the right cards that you need. There's some games where I don't see Gifts and Given or I don't see um, Grape Shot, and this just really helps me say, okay, here is my, here are my 13 tutus. Do you have an answer for this? Um, if you don't, I'm going to win. Yeah, I've actually considered that card for Storm in the past. Um, the issue is it's I think it's mana cost, uh, but it's very, very powerful uh, because you don't need to generate Storm, you just need to cast it. Yeah. Uh, so it's a lot like Empty the Warrens, but just you know slightly different. That's a very low base later in the game. Yeah. So if you're short on cards because you've kind of fought back and forth over stuff, you rip it off the top with maybe one... Um, ramp spell or not one ramp uh one um ritual, ritual. effect end uh you're pretty likely to be able to jam it and get a lot of tokens yeah the only the only downside that i do see about the card is that the creatures come into play tapped which um makes it a little less worse than empty the warrants but like you said it's 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 different it's not meant to replace empty the warrants it's just a different uh win con that you can use uh when you're fizzling out on uh, drawing cards. Yeah, I like it a lot. I think that's a good call and something people should uh, test and keep at an least eye out for, be aware yeah, of, definitely. Yeah, at least at least consider uh, the thought of adding it. There might be some, you know, in, in, a, in a highly aggressive format, you know, it's probably not the best card to bring in. Um, but if you're playing against a bunch of control decks, uh, this seems like a, a great way to to. Uh, go your opponent into countering a, a gifts and given and then casting this off of two rituals just seems it seems really good uh what about you john uh my card of the week or my soul of the week is the scarab god i think this card is excellent right now uh, it's obviously uh, gas and standard uh, it's extremely powerful effect for five mana it's very hard to deal with it sticks around it really punishes people who can't deal with it I watched a lot of uh, Gabriel Nassif's streams over the last week, week and a half, like I was saying earlier. Uh, he actually played in a mox with a blue-black control deck in Modern. Um, it kind of started off as a meme deck. He was playing the Scarab God as a joke. It turned out to be pretty good. He refined the deck over the course of the week and ended up going 6-2 and two in the mox. Um, 
The card is an excellent finisher for a modern control deck. It's very difficult to deal with, it generates value, uh, and it survives wrath effects that you might be wanting to use, uh, use on the, using on the board. So having a very durable threat like that is um, really desirable from the perspective of a control deck. Um, so that is why the Scary Rod is my pick of the week. How about you, Zach? I like that one. I think, uh, I think eventually that could find a home in modern. Uh, so this week I'm actually also going with a blue-black card. My card is Shadow of Doubt. Uh, the reason for that, if you look on MTG Goldfish right now, the top deck in Modern is Scapeshift uh, with Primeval Titan, the red-green version. Uh, so obviously the namesake card Scapeshift as well as Primeval Titan and 16 or so uh, sorceries that they have in their deck are all just trying to search out lands. Uh, well, when they cast Scapeshift, if you cast Shadow of Doubt, it's essentially a cantripping counterspell. So it has a lot of value there. It's easy to cast because it has hybrid mana. But it's not only useful there. Uh, if you are playing it and you bring it in against a deck like Death Shadow, it's fairly easy to cycle that if you don't find a good spot for it. But they're running 12 fetch lands, so it's very likely you could sinkhole them. Uh, and if you are running against certain versions of Tron, they have surge effects. There's a lot of searching going on and going on in modern, and when you are trying to beat the deck that is the top percentage, and that deck is Scapeshift, I think it's a good pick for this week. I actually want to point out too that Shadow Doubt is an excellent sideboard card for control decks in modern right now. One of the worst decks to face as a control deck is these ramp these big mana decks that are casting a lot of lands, they're searching them out of their decks. Shadow of Doubt is an excellent answer to those type of decks that you might sometimes have difficulty finding a sideboard slot for. So that about wraps it up. Steven, take us home. So thank you guys for checking us out, and thanks for sticking around till the very end of this uh, first podcast. Uh, if you're wondering where you can check out more of our stuff, um, you can head over to mtgconflicts.com um, where you'll see our only podcast there. Uh, we're still under construction, so um, while it looks a little barren now, we will be populating it soon with hopefully some articles and hopefully some good content for you guys to check out. Um, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter under the same name for both. It's mtgconflicts, one word. Uh, and if you have any other comments or suggestions that you'd really like us to uh to read please feel free to email us at uh the mtg conflicts at gmail.com and we really do appreciate you sticking around to the very end and we hope you join us in the next one see ya